Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Yes, it is The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. And the theme today is, can we make you rich? And we'll be looking at the BRW. Well, it's not BRW anymore. It's the AFR. How how conditioned am I? That's the the value of advertising the brand for, isn't it? It used to be called the BRW Rich List. Yeah, good afternoon. It did actually (laughs) used to be called the BRW Rich List. And I think it was always owned by Fairfax, part of the same stable. And they sort of just absorbed... BRW into the AFR disappeared, what, five years ago, yeah, six yeah. years ago? It was a pity. It was Maybe always longer. a great magazine. Yeah, Robert Gottlieb, yeah. of course, was the famous editor and still around. But, yeah, uh, yeah now they uh, had their Rich List 200 on, on Friday. Peter, I looked, I read carefully, I got to name number 200. <laughs> I'm looking for the P Switzer right. and... Uh, It'll come. Maybe my glasses fogged up or something. <laughs> it'll Pete. come. It'll come. So What it, what it does tell me, Pete, yeah. is you don't have 380... Seven million dollars or three hundred eighty-eight yeah, million dollars. I'm working I, on that. I've learned from looking at the fine print of that you need three hundred eighty. You needed to have three hundred eighty-seven million dollars to qualify. Yeah. So, I guess you're just outside. Just outside. Just outside that. But, but look, Paul. The, the interesting thing is we've got John Stenholt, who is the editor of the AFR Rich List, coming on the program later. And and, and I want to help people get rich. I, I always try and do that. That's the whole point of the Switzer Show. And a lot of people are asking me. Is Telstra and the big four banks in that buying opportunity zone now? Because a lot of people like to either start buying stocks or they want to add to their portfolio. And let's start off with Telstra because I know you wrote a story about it recently and it got as low as $2.72 last week, didn't it? So- it did. I wrote when it was at $2.85, which was the week before, that it, uh, it wasn't a buy at $2.85 just oh. yet. And it did last week. It did drop down as low as two seventy two, and today it's trading just below two eighty five. So it's sort of look, we've had a bit of a blow off bottom. Some and, people came in at two seventy two. Yeah, yeah, I mean, look, um, I guess the problem with Telstra. Let's just explain what 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 is Telstra's underlying problem is that it's it's revenue challenged, mm-hmm. and it has two major issues on revenue. First of all, what has been the real growth of Telstra has been its mobile network. Uh, the mobile network is under a lot of pressure mm. for two reasons. One is, as you said today, Peter, Optus and Vodafone have got their act together. They were hopeless before. They were, well, they were in the hopeless category yeah. and they've invested it and they are actually starting to cause Telstra a lot of pain, not necessarily because they're taking share, but because of the pricing competition, which means yeah. Telstra's average revenue per user, which is called the ARPU measure, has actually been in decline. So despite everyone using... Their smartphone, like there's nothing else, no other device no, exactly you could possibly right. had. Telstra's actually making less money out of each smartphone mm. than it was three or four years ago, and it has been under decline now for a couple last couple of years. So that's the first problem, yeah. and we still have TPG yet to come. So yeah. TPG's tell our listeners what TPG is going to do to this market. Well, they've actually, um, I fact, no, interesting story, Peter. I went outside here, and we're based in Sydney in Pitt Street, and yep. there's a little construction notice up for a little special purpose TPG tower. Oh, really? So TPG apparently plans to enter the market, and they're not going to offer voice services. They're just going to offer um, effectively uh, data services. 
and so they'll be providing unlimited data. I think mm. you'll pay a small fee and you'll get unlimited data. And they say that, when I say they're not voice services, people now use you know SMS so much and they use apps like WhatsApp and all the other mm. apps you can actually talk through effectively, <laughs> to yeah. which effectively is converted back as data rather than voice. I don't, I'm not getting very technical here. But, but, yeah. that, but they'll have unlimited data, so you won't be able to use your phone to initially to dial. Is well, unlimited data for really low fees? <laughs> it sounds like it's the, the guy who runs it, it's a guy by the name of Tio, yeah, isn't it's, it? It's, and of course, yeah, the brands that TPG has, apart from they took over IONET, right. and they've been very successful in the, you know, in, in the fixed mm. cable business, uh, fixed broadband business. Um, and I guess, look, they're going to give Telstra some pain. So even if, even if it's not a super competitive offer, it's still going to lead pricing pressure. Yeah. And that's, that's, so that's coming back to Telstra. That's the first issue. The key mobiles business isn't growing revenue. And the second issue uh, is to do with the NBN. And, of course, under the NBN, Telstra gets paid a big fee up front for every customer that converts onto the NBN. So when you get a sign-up notice and you're given 18 months to sign up, mm. every time that happens, Telstra gets a big one-off revenue from the, from the NBN for converting. Uh, but as more and more people stop using the existing Telstra services, the old you know, copper, uh, wire. copper wire and the phone and the fixed broadband and yep. switch on to the NBN, Telstra is no longer the wholesaler making the margin. It becomes one of more than 100 retailers mm. <laughs> all fighting uh, for your NBN business and getting very small margins out of, out of what, you know, the, the, yeah. the difference between what they're charging you and what they have to pay the NBN for those wholesale services. And a lot of Telstra's revenue is currently as a function of these one-off payments from the government. Now, eventually, the one-off payments stop because everyone's converted, and Telstra's just left as a retailer. Paul, because it's so big, why can't they just sort of exterminate, exterminate their opposition? Well, that's what they've got, and so they've estimated what this number is, and it, and it's, it has an impact on EBITDA or earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, amortization mm. of about three billion dollars by financial year 2022. Now, just to put the, the $3 billion in perspective, Telstra's current EBITDA is about $10 billion. Mm-hmm. So it's about 30% of their gross mark profit. Yeah. And of course, before Telstra, you know, it has, it has to pay interest because it has debt, and then it's got to pay a dividend. So it has a huge impact on earnings. And Telstra hasn't yet been able to tell the market how it's going to replace all this NBN revenue that's mm. going to lose. So the problem with Telstra is mobile revenue is flat to falling and the NBN has a bigger recur- impact on recurring revenue over time. Telstra hasn't yet been able to tell the market how it's going to Paul, when change the, its earnings profile. When its share price was around, what, $2.20 or 30 got got very low a few years back, did, did it spike purely because it got NBN revenue or was it, because the NBN revenue didn't come in when its share price started to rise. It was an added fillip, wasn't it? To, to yeah, I don't know whether it. we ever quite saw $2.20. We, we did see a period when uh, very low, the Future Fund then, yeah. was selling out of all its yes. shares. Remember the, when, the, when the NBN was set up, of course, what happened was the government owned, still had all these... It goes back even further than that. It goes back that the, the prioritisation was Telstra was never completed and the government had a whole lot of, a whole lot of uh, mm. Telstra shares. And John Howard said, take those. And, and when they set up the Future Fund, which of course was to you know, find a way to, to cover public sector so, superannuation, superannuation mm. John Howard said, okay, take all the, um, 
the, the Telstra shares, and that went into sort of the core nucleus of what started off as the Future Fund. And, of course, the first thing that the Future Fund trustees did, including David Murray, was to say, well, we can't have all our assets tied up in Telstra. It was like 20% or something. Yeah, it was a huge proportion. So they actually over sort of sold all their Telstra shares in about 2009, 2010. And that was basically the low in Telstra share price. Mm. And then Telstra then went up to over $6. And then really it was only about two years ago when sort of Telstra, everyone knew the NBN was really hard for the market to understand what the impact of the NBN was. Yeah. And everyone knew Telstra was sort of getting these upfront payments, but no one knew what the recurring impact of revenue was going to be. And Telstra sort of fronted up and said, well, we've got a $3 billion hole. It doesn't actually kick in for about five years, but we've got a $3 billion hole. And it's been since then that it's been under pressure yeah. and really has yet to actually tell the market how it's going to address that, either okay. through new revenue or, you know, cost-cutting or whatever it is. And then I suppose the third thing is you've got a CEO the market doesn't think too highly of in Andy yeah. Penn. And yeah. uh, that's why Telstra is at $2.85. Okay. Is it a buy around these levels? If not, how low does it have to go before Paul Rickard I'm says, not yet buy. in the buy camp for two reasons. One is I think uh, I think Andy Penn's underwhelming. Hmm. And I'm trying to be nice to him, but I just don't, he's think, nice guy. I, I I just don't think he's got the, he's the team around him to cut it. Uh, and two, I still think they've got to get a bit more, we need to see a bit more detail around how they're going to address the whole. If, if you know, board comes in, gets really serious about cutting costs, new CEO, they're able to talk about, you know, really how they're going to address this whole, you know, Telstra, you know, could be a buy. Yeah. But I'm just not sure we're seeing it just yet, Peter. So it's sort of more, you know, I've learned... It's very hard to pick the bottom in a market, no, right? right? And maybe 272 last week was the bottom for Telstra. Mm. That could have been the blow-off bottom. But I'm not quite there yet, so I'm sort of saying, well, I'm not really ready to say, yes, you get back into Telstra big time. Okay, quickly before we go to our first guest. You disagree with me, though, don't you? Yeah, yeah, you, I, yeah I, do, I think if I'm a long-term investor, I don't mind buying around here. I think probably 272, it might go to 262 or something like that. I think the potential for Telstra is extraordinary because it's got probably the best database in the country. Yep. And these guys just simply don't know how to sell to that database. Look, I ask this question. Have you ever received an email from Telstra where you thought, gee, that's a good deal? I might, I might think about it. They, they, don't, they don't even talk to their customer. It's absolutely and, crazy. And that's, that's the problem. I mean, look, I mean, I, I, uh, I could get – am I selling Telstra at these levels? The answer is no, right? I mean, but – Am I putting more money in? It's just not quite there, but you're right. They have, And this is the problem. We've always said this for so many years. Telstra has so much potential. It just doesn't seem to be able to execute. Now, maybe maybe the, the share, that's why the share price has come from 6 to $2.82. All the bad news is out. And we all know markets over-exaggerate. They go too high and they go too low. And it's sort of like, well, you know, are we there? Maybe we are, but I just, I'd like to see just a, I'd probably like to see one or two things happen first before I get comfortable. Okay, one last thing before we go to the ad break. Uh, the big four banks. The big question is, do we buy before the Royal Commission's over or do we wait till it's over and start to see the market say, ah, oh, the worst is behind us, got momentum, jump in on yeah, that. I think the banks are a buyer. Now, I have to be, put a bit of caveat on that, Peter. I've been saying that now for some months and been wrong. Yeah. So sometimes have you been wrong, wrong terribly? Has it has it been a big drop? No, it hasn't been a huge drop, no. but I've been wrong. So you know, sometimes when you're just out of kilter with the market, sometimes yeah. you're better off just admitting it and stepping back and saying, "I don't know." Yeah. But look, I, I think they are a buy. I, I think 
most of the noise is out on the Royal Commission. I just can't see this continuing at this pace, but all the market will get bored with it. But certainly, and again, you're going to have to be patient because the market is not there yet. The market is still looking to sell the banks. And look, uh, so I think for patient long-term investors, you're going to be rewarded, but you probably don't want to use all your power up just yet. No, I mean you're 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 much more positive on the banks. Yeah, the yeah. Look, but once again, I've I got think. the same view. I, I, if I bought and I haven't bought, I'm getting close to buying. I think, but um, if I bought, I, I think the, the the downside would be quite small, and I buy and invest for the three year period. And I've found pleasantly over the years that when I do that, I I tend to get a good return even in the first year, uh, and. But if I have to wait a couple of years and I average, say, 5 or 6% return plus dividends at 10%, and you get to have a good quality company once a market has trashed it, as I think they've done, pretty aggressively to the banks. Yeah, I mean, CBA under $70 is, is starting to really look tempting to me. Yeah. Uh, it was $95 before... I'm watching that carefully and thinking if I had cash, maybe that's where... Some might go. Okay. Well, that's our learned view at this point in time. We're giving you a definite maybe on both five st- on all, all five stocks. Okay. After the break, we'll be talking to John Stenholt, who is the editor of the AFR Rich List. And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate, and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Now, here's Switzy. Okay, our first guest today is John Stenholt from the Australian Financial Review. And John becomes a star at least once a year with his... Uh, financial Review Rich List. He's the editor of that illustrious story. Yeah, is it some time? Is it one time of the year, John, when you do become a star in the media? Uh, it certainly gets a lot of attention, uh, and it's good fun because it, you know it's sort of four or five months of solid work leading up to it. It just feels like it gets bigger every year, and I suppose that's why you do it, isn't it? Because people are reading it. But mm. there's a lot of interest in how much money people are making or losing, so. Yeah, it's, it's good fun, actually. How long have you been doing it for now? Oh, I've, I've been uh, the rich research for about the last 10 years, back, going back to the BRW days as well. Hmm. I, took, I had a couple, of week, a couple of years break off it, but yeah, pretty much the last decade, really. So, and it's had its ups and downs since then. It was post-GFC, well, pre and then post-GFC, and a few years there, there were downtimes. But ever since then, I mean, things have boomed probably in the last five, six years in particular. The thing that intrigues me, John, is that my understanding of, of the few really wealthy people I've met is they're pretty private and do uh, keep their w- wealth very much under wraps. So how do you actually calculate how much wealth each person has? What are some of the tricks that, uh, I won't say tricks, but things you guys need to do to actually ascertain this information? And do you go through their garbage <laughs> tins as well, John? <laughs> <laughs> not quite, not quite. But we do go through a lot of uh, a lot of company records that are lodged with ASIC, with the ASX as well. We do all sorts of company searches as well, land title searches, all that sort of thing. There's a, so much information out there. I mean, you've got to pay for some of it. So that's the issue, uh, you know, that might prevent you from doing a search if you're with the general public. But there's a lot of information. 
And most importantly, we go through it or try to go through it or at least pass it, at least go over what we've done with the people involved and the list themselves. And you would be very surprised how many people actually talk to us in, on the back, in background about their wealth. Now, it's a little bit of them telling us what they want, want us to hear, I suppose. But look, I, I just don't think anyone gets as much access to the wealthy people that we do. I reckon a good 80% of the list engage with us on a confidential basis mm. in the background about their valuation and have been doing so for several years. So I guess we've got those long-standing connections. The list is 35 years old. They expect that call, and we, we try to get in touch with everybody. I mean, otherwise, it opens yourself up to all sorts of issues if you don't, I think. So does that go to your most sort of perhaps, uh, you know, not preparing the draft article but sending to, you know, rich person A, this is what we think you're, you're worth and and almost what assets you've got, and they come back and say, well, John, you're right on this, but, you know, I've got rid of this asset or I've done something else. Is that sort of the way it, it, it sort of pans out? Yeah. Yeah, there's a little bit of that for sure. We'll say, look, we, we think the number should be this this year and it's based on uh, you know on that. And they'll come back and say, yeah, that sounds about right or actually have you thought about this or, you know, I sold this or I bought this. Mm. It can be as, you know, quick as a sentence or two. It can be a few paragraphs. I've had people on the list send us valuations that they've got, uh, you know, experts <laughs> to do for them or mm. lists of assets, uh, property holdings, all that sort of thing as well. So, yeah, as I said, you'd be surprised as to how much information we can get. I mean, it's, this is a bit of a scorecard for these people at the mm-hmm. end of the day. I mean, you know, if, you, if, you have a, if you're in a football team, your ladder is published every week, you know, based on your wins and losses on the weekend game, in the, during the weekend games. Whereas these guys, it's really once a year, I suppose, that they get compared to their peers. And this just shows you how much success they're having in business, which is their real passion in life. Jo- I mean, these are driven individuals and everything's about their business. John, how often have you had phone calls from them saying, what are you guys calculating? You're totally wrong. I'm much richer than that. Have you had that kind of complaint in the past? Oh, in to start with, I suppose we might. They might say, actually, no, I'm worth a lot more than that. Uh, so there's a bit of that. But look, as long as we're trying to get in touch with them, that you know, that's the main thing. So mm. hardly anything post-publication. Uh, and usually, when we have got any complaints. It's, I've, had, I've been able to say, look, we tried to contact you on you know, this particular date. We sent you this message. This is what we went through, and you, you, know, you didn't get back to us. Well, you know, so we tried our best. Mm. And, and look, to be fair, that actually means probably the following year that they do engage with us on a, well, look, if you're going to publish something, you may as well get it right, sort mm. of ideal, I guess. So, yeah, look, we do, we do try our best to speak to them. We do speak to a lot, to a lot, to a lot of them, and I think... Given that, you know, we do a pretty good job in that regard, I think. Well, maybe we should get to the actual list, uh, mm. John. And the first comment I wanted to make is the top three, and maybe you can go through those. They're all really close. Yes. Well, this is the thing. I, I was surprised. I mean, we've we've kept our methodology pretty pretty much the same. So yeah, we've got Anthony Pratt, twelve point nine billion. Harry Triggerboff, twelve point seven seven billion. And Gina Reinhart, twelve point six eight billion. So I didn't think of it that way, but, but when you look at it like that. You're right, there's not much between them. So it probably shows that uh, next year, well, you know, it could change entirely between the three, really. And some people would wonder who Hugh Wing Mao is. Can you fill us in? Yeah, well, everyone we have on the list are Australian citizens. So Rupert Murdoch, who took out US, US citizenship back in the 80s, he's not on our list. But Hui Wing uh, Mao is. So he, well, he's not a big name here in Australian business. He's main uh, wealth comes from a Hong Kong listed company called Shimao Property. So that's, that's shares have gone up a fair bit in the last six months. But most importantly, 
he came out to Australia in the 90s, early 90s, studied for an MBA at the Uni of South Australia and took out citizenship during that time. So he's gone back, back to China, back to Hong Kong, made his fortune there. He's actually been buying assets in Australia in the last couple of years, so he's still got a connection there. He actually bought Harold Mitchell's uh, cattle holdings earlier in the year, and he's got a meat processor and export business in New South Wales. So there's that Australian rural uh, industry as well, rural investment story too. Who's been the biggest dropout, um, you know, the, the disappointment story last year compared to this year? Well, it's more of a case that the, the cutoff to make the list has gone up so much. So it's sort of left a few people behind. That makes sense. I mean, it was 340-odd million last year. And this year, it's 287 million. So, yeah, it's 40-odd million different. Uh, Harold, Harold Mitchell's actually one of the ones that's fallen off, but not because he's done anything wrong. It's just his wealth hasn't increased as much as others. Nicole Kidman's another prominent one, too. We've had her on the list for quite a few years. But, you know, again, other people are making more money than, than, than she has this year and her valuation is just not enough. So there hasn't been like a big um, shakeout or fallout that there was, particularly back in 2009, just after the GFC. So, you know, every time the economy is going really well like it is now and property prices are still going up, I still I think, well, when's the shakeout coming in? We're getting closer to it. So, you know, maybe next year or a couple of years' time that may happen again. It's interesting you say that because just looking at the list and what people are involved in, it seems that, you know, property is a is a pretty strong sort of theme that goes through. Lots of people have made a lot of money out of property and property development. Is that? Do you think that's true today in 2018, as say it was, you know, when you when your predecessors like sort of first started compiling the list? I think if anything, that's, that trend's got a lot stronger. So we've got 51 people on the list this year that have made their money from property. So that's a quarter of the list, right? Mm. But the other thing is that people have made money in other industries and then parlayed that wealth into property, seeing it as a, as a safe haven, I suppose. So, you know, Paul Little makes his money from Toll Holdings, mm-hmm. uh, sells up there, you know, transport business, and then now he's a property developer. Tony Denny had a used car business uh, across Europe, made a huge fortune over there, comes back to Australia and starts developing property in New South Wales. I mean, that's a, that's a really interesting trend. You make your money in one industry and then put it into property yeah. in another it means a lot of people are leveraged to, a lot of people on the list are leveraged to property. So if the property bubble bursts, there could be some very interesting times ahead. But for now, they just keep piling into the sector. It's very interesting. Well, it's funny. In 2008, I was laying on a beach on the island of Sifnos in Greece, and I was probably the only person on the beach reading my copy of BRW magazine. And you, you were probably editing it in 2008, John, weren't you? I was, actually, yeah, yes. Yeah. And, the, and, I, and one of the things I did was I went through all the people on the list to work out where they made their money. And, it, and the, the majority made it either from property or business. Mm. Uh, there were very few CEOs, top-notch executives on that list. And uh, the point that you made, that a lot of people make it in business, like the case of Little, and then rolls into property. It's a very, very important um, wealth-building lesson, I thought. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think it's, Look, just talking I think about... It sort of uh, makes it a bit safer if it doesn't. So, well, that's yeah. what they're thinking at the moment. But again, let's see what happens. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think, Peter, as you say, it's a great wealth-building lesson or at least wealth-preservation uh, yeah. lesson. Just going back mm. to uh, Anthony Pratt, and I've got to ask you about the photograph of him that appeared on... Uh, the, the cover of the magazine on Friday. And as soon as we saw that photograph in the office here, we had a, 
a really big discussion about whether that was for real or it had been photoshopped. But on, on second thoughts, I don't know if you saw the photo, Peter, with uh, Anthony Pratt sitting on a on a cardboard box wearing his stars and stripes tie and, and red socks and uh, looking quite um, quite regal. Look, how did you get such a brilliant photograph, John? Oh, no, it, he, he's up for that, absolutely. It was an idea. So he's got this amazing success in his US business. Yeah, he has. So uh, he, he actually got... So, yeah, what it is, it's, it's, a, it's almost like a take of the Lincoln Memorial. Mm. So you've got the big chair of him sitting on it. It's made out of cardboard and the chair. And, and actually, his company made that. So it's taken... The photo was taken uh, at his Staten Island plant uh, in America, you know, just... Uh, just next to New York there, next to Manhattan, and absolutely he posts for it. So, look, I think, you know, he's a guy who's enjoying his success at the moment. He was up for it, did a good photo for us last year as well from memory, and, uh, and look, you know, he's got a bit of a sense of humour too, I suppose. So uh, it's probably one of those things, though, isn't it? You just want to make sure you keep going well in business or otherwise a photo like that comes back to haunt you. <laughs> it sure does. But now, it's probably going to go down as a... very well and he was very accommodating. Well, look, it's great that he could do that and he, uh, you know, he's, he's got a sense of humour because it's going to go down, I reckon, as one of the photos of the year. So <laughs> congratulations to you or whoever the, uh, the, the, the photographer who, uh, who, who worked with Anthony to, uh, to get that because it does, it is absolutely a really brilliant photograph. Yeah, look, two things. Um, his dad was a thespian, wasn't he? Anthony, uh, his old man, really loved the acting case. Yes. Um, so I was almost surprised to see that. But tell us about Gina. What's happened to her over the year? Oh, look, she's still going pretty well. In fact, she's, her wealth is up uh, from what it was last year. But the, I guess the difference with her is that we've, you know, 23% of her assets now, all of the greater Hancock prospecting assets now, we attribute it to Bianca Reinhardt, her daughter. Mm. They had the big, you know, legal trials and tribulations and the battles over the family trust. That, uh, you know, if you go look up the corporate records now, Bianca's actually on the Hancock board, and uh, that portion is, uh, I suppose, attributed to her. So we put her on the list as well. As always with the with the mining, uh, you know, heirs and heiresses, a lot of it is really subject to legal action. So. I don't know what happens to that in the next few years as to whether it gets split up in even further, whether it goes back under Gina's control. But for now, that's where she is. So, look, her business is going pretty well. She's hit some big export targets lately, exporting iron ore to, to China with Roy Hill. There's some big debt holdings there, but it is churning out a lot of cash as well. And commodity prices are up a bit since last year too. So for the miners, things are going pretty well, including her. And John, what were some of the big surprises this year? Did anyone, uh, well, any other the theme? Anyone come out of the blue that you hadn't been expecting? Oh, we, you always get people we put on the list that are, uh, you know, new people, I suppose. Um, Vivek Sago is an Indian-born uh, car parts manufacturing giant over there, but we found out that he's actually got Australian citizenship as well. Right. So we put him on the list this year, and he's worth five point eight eight billion. So he makes the. <laughs> He makes the top 10. We put Justin Hems, the Sydney um, hotelier, on the list too this time, $951 million. So you get people like that pop up that are going really, really well. Um, you know, Ruslan Kogan, who runs Kogan.com, he's a young guy he's on the list as well for the first time. And Trevor St. Baker, who, you know, was, a, I guess, having old assets and power, electricity generation, he's back because, uh, you know, him and another guy on the, on the rich list bought a power station at Vales Point one for a dollar 
mm. now all of a sudden it's worth you know 722 million. So you get people like that pop up, which are that, yeah, I guess that's the, the fun part of doing it. There's always really interesting stories like these people behind behind their success or behind their de- debuting on the list. That's what I think is what readers really really look to for some sort of. Uh, you know, entertainment and even inspiration. Well, it's a great uh, addition to our media reading over the year. John, I'll just give you a little tip of a story that would be perfect for you and the AFR would be, you know, the nincompoop companies that sell these assets for a dollar, like Nathan Tinkler was a guy who cashed in on BHP stupidity. There's there's so many cases where prominent companies don't really really understand the value of assets. They sell them for ridiculous amounts and people become rich on the strength of it. That's true, isn't it? I mean, like it's almost like when they have too many uh, yeah, too many assets and, and what they deem to be non-core, which means really that they're not really you know, worrying about them or, or, or working with well enough with them. And then mm. I guess you know, one man's trash is another man's treasure, isn't it? The old, uh, is the old adage. So, mm. yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, you know, history's littered with that. Uh, undervalued assets that were bought by people who then, you know, uncovered them, uh, so to speak, and, uh, and went on to great success with them. Oh, I can only see that continuing, given the way that, uh, you know, corporate Australia runs some of the companies. Yeah. Without a doubt. Mate, if people want to see this, it's still on the AFR website, of course. Absolutely. It's on the AFR website. It's also on the newsstand for the next few weeks, too, as a separate magazine. Great stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's around for a while, yet. Yeah. Thanks, John. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. That was John Stenholt, who's the editor of the AFR Rich List. We'll be back in a moment after this break. And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate, and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Too many people spend money they earned to buy things they don't want to impress people that they don't like. So stick with Switzer and get rich. Where are my teeth? Well, welcome back. And I've got to say, um, I always love talking to John Stenholt. It is one of the great business stories of the year, Paul, isn't it? Look, it is a buy. You've got a die, a die for magazine that, uh, you know, I, mm. I'm not a. For I'm boring sort of, types like you and me. Yeah, but look, it is. It's really interesting. I mean, that yeah. photo, I just. You ha- I have to show you that photo, Peter, if you haven't seen it. It yeah. is yeah. almost one to put up on the a frame on the wall. I think that will win an award. You heard it here first. Yeah. A Walkley Award. Uh, if, if not the business photo, but probably the, one of the best photos around for the year. So. Yeah, and, and I've got to say, Paul, um, you know, when you had those sort of um, great eureka moments, um, and that what I was talking about, recalling laying on the, a beach on the island of Sifnos in Greece in 2008, which was, was after the market had crashed, and it was still around the time when they still thought oil was going to go to 150 US dollars, which I thought was an extraordinary story at the time. Um, but when you analyse the great business wealth builders in this country, they came from, like Frank Lowe, he started basically in a delicatessen mm. in the western suburbs, turned it into you know, the shopping mall extraordinary business that you know, is now worth billions and billions and he sold it for. How much did he sell it for, Paul? You're usually good on those numbers. I'm going to pass on that one, Peter, <laughs> yeah. but he sold it for billions. Yeah, lots <laughs> of billions. Anyway, 
the bottom line is that they then churn their money into property. And yeah. Harry Triggerboff is a classic case of someone who's made a lot of money out of property. I thought the other take apart from property was that there's a lot of very pa- – about investors being patient. I mean, Anthony Pratt obviously started mm. by his family, but in cardboard, that yeah. started from very humble origins, but a very patient long-term investor. Uh, you know, people like Gina Reinhardt, with her, obviously her father. Again, mm. that's taken years and decades to, to develop. She developed the business that Lang Hancock couldn't yeah, really do. Yeah, uh, and we can almost look at the same with the, 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 these things. There, there are a couple of people. There's a couple of them on the tech side that have made their money in a few years, mm. but most people have been made over you know decades. Mm. Uh, and it's very patient, and it's usually single, single focus, yeah. and kept at it. Uh, that's the other lesson for well, me. Well, Russell Kogan and Justin Hems are two young blokes who really have committed to building a business. You know, like Rustling also worked out he could buy televisions cheaply in, in uh, China and has diversified into a, a pretty successful online business. And then you've got Justin Hems, who's probably one of the best hospitality developers this country's ever seen. Yeah, not really known outside Sydney, but uh, you go to any of the major establishments in Sydney, including the establishment and... The Ivy. <laughs> the Ivy and a lot of the restaurants and uh, the some lots of the best pubs. Some of the best pubs, yeah. uh, they're all owned by Justin Hem. So he's. Uh, and he did it even through the GFC. I thought the GFC could bring him undone because he had done so much development beforehand and he, he, he marched his way through. It's a fantastic story. But again, in each of those, a real commitment to quality because they are at the quality end and uh, service is good and you pay for what you get, but oh, you, yeah. you get it. So. Yep, exactly. Now it's time to answer some questions from our listeners. That was a sting in the half, wasn't it, Paul? Okay, let's just see uh, Marcus from Perth. Good question. If I buy art in my super fund, can I hang it on my wall? Look, Marcus, great question. The answer is probably not. And the reason... Is fairly probably wrong. Well, so you've got to define, you, well, define walls in the normal home and yeah. perhaps a special wall there where all the art was properly insured and mm. had the right temperature controls and everything mm. else and probably someone couldn't touch it. I mean, mm. the, the, what, what, what I'm getting to say, Peter, is, of course, it's got to be treated like an investment. Mm. And an investment has to be, you know, if you're buying an art, the whole idea is that the super fund's going to be given every chance so that that art can go up as much as it needs to over whatever period you hold it for. So that means, first of all, that the art needs to be properly stored. You know, and we all know that good artwork is stored in a, an area where you've got the proper you know, humidity and temperature control so that the, you know, the painting can't, I guess, Peter, I'm no expert, but expand or contract. Because so it's pretty uh, expert yeah, because it's because it's an investment, it's mm. got to be insured, uh, it's got to have the right security, all those type of things. So, yep. for ninety nine percent of people, I'd say no, you can't store it on your, put it on your wall at home. You've got to get it into an art bank or wherever the places they they store um, art securely. It's designed as an investment. It's meant to have its best chances of appreciating it as an investment. It's not there for your personal and private use. So, okay. Uh, for the 99%, the answer is no. Well, I've got to say, a very good mate of mine who unfortunately has passed away, um, and very famous, but I still won't name him even though he has passed away, he always kept a big um, pile of bubble wrap at the door of his house 
because he had a whole lot of paintings that were just super fun on his wall. And he always believed if the tax man came, he would have enough time to wrap them up. This was before the law changed, but you still weren't supposed to hang up on your own wall, even in those days. So they won't name that, that particular... And, and just one other thing, because you came up with a very lateral idea. It might help people like Marcus just to think this mm-hmm. through. Um, if you buy art and other collectibles in your super fund, you can, of course, buy them out of your fund again when you retire. Yeah. And so that there's, there's a what we call the related party test, and that may, means it's almost possible for the, your super fund to buy things from you or a relative, but it's very, very possible for you to buy things from your super fund. Yeah, when so you're retired. When you're retired, zero it's a tax phase. So mm. what you might do is buy the artwork you like, mm. you know, uh, put it into an art bank for two, three, five, ten, or fifteen years, yes. and then when you come to retire and you're taking money back out of your super fund, or you're taking the assets of your super fund back into your own hands, you can effectively do a, an in specie contribution of that artwork back to you. Yeah, and then then you're free to do what you want with it. So. Yeah. There are other ways to sort of look at the same problem. Okay, you know I love talk, thinking laterally, Paul, and these sort of things. How about this? My self-managed super fund owns the artwork, mm-hmm. and my company um, leases it at a, at a market price, mm-hmm. and it's on the wall in my folio. Because I, I, I know I can lease it to another company, but the question, because mm, that happens all the time, wrong. could I lease it to my own company at, the, at a market accepted rate it's a good question it is a good question i think it's going to have to be a a, if there was a related party type transaction the answer is no but if your party if your company was a public company you just happened to be the very influential ceo or Mm. or cfo or somebody who was responsible for getting art in the company possibly but i think i think if you controlled the company the answer is no the interesting thing would be to get that checked out i've got a funny feeling you're right I've got a funny feeling I'm right too, yeah, but, but, but we will test it out. We always like stretching the law. But one thing we should say, you can lease it to a, another company yep, for absolutely. sure. Yep. And that means that your artwork is not only going up in value like a stock can, it's also giving you income div- like a dividend. And that's a really yeah, good Yeah, and asset. there are companies like Art Index, who's one of our sponsors, yeah. so who helps people select art and then lease art. Uh, out to companies and other people that need to display it. So you can actually earn an income on a collectible-like artwork. Yeah. Okay, here's one from June. Um, She says, Hello, Peter. I'm trying to help my daughter out and wondered if you could suggest the easiest way for me to do an assessment of her current super fund, which is Uni Super Conservative Balanced, uh, and the fund of her new employer, which is called NGS. That's non-government schools, I think. Um, she's working for a church-run hospital, and this is their default fund. So NGS has probably schools and hospitals in it. Can you offer a suggestion for any easy comparison tool or any assistance might be will be much appreciated? Yeah, look, I actually did a bit of pre, pre-work on this question, Peter. I'm glad um, you did, Paul. Because uh, we did actually get this in earlier in the day. Mm. Um, the first thing I'd say to uh, June is that, uh, look, Uni Super Fund is, is a great fund, yeah. well-run fund, and they offer lots of different investment options. So I, I don't think you – we can give you the name of the comparison super sites yeah. like uh, Chant West and, and uh, Super Ratings. Super so you can go and check them there, but you'll find Uni Super's rated five stars or four stars on everything. So, yeah. look, and I know uh, John Pierce is the CEO there, and I think you do as well, yeah. Peter. No problem about the fund. The, the, the issue here is, is it the right investment option? Yeah. And I, I read that, and we don't know how old your daughter is, but conservative balance uh, is, is sort of, I did a bit of look at their scale, and mm. that's sort of way down near the, 
not, it's not the least risky, but it's sort of it's pretty low in the risk. I'd states. be expecting a four or five yeah. percent return per annum. Yeah, annual, and you? I don't know whether your daughter's sort of twenties or thirties or forties or fifties. We have data information, but I'd be. I think that's a fairly, um, and it's actually less than their normal default options. So, my question would be, um, if she's got a long time before she's going to need to access her retirement savings, so 30, 40 years. Uh, if she's not, I wouldn't say a risk taker, but doesn't mind a little bit of market fluctuation, can live through two or three economic cycles. Yeah, I, I would be encouraging to look at generally at a, at a, at a, a balance, a balance, or maybe even a growth type yeah. investment option. And I think that's what you should be talking to her about. Yeah. The other question I'd say as well uh, is whether she's got insurance through super. Now that's a great strategy for people that have got dependents mm. and got to pay a mortgage off and all those type of thing. If your daughter's say in her early twenties, no dependents, no mortgage, you know, just sort of accumulating wealth, I'd probably question whether she needs insurance, uh, and it might be better off putting the money that's going from the insurance policy uh, straight into her super fund instead. So, mm-hmm. the two questions for me are: what's you know, is that the best? The, the points I'd ha- our discussion be: is that the right investment option? And we can't really say here, but superficially, it's doesn't look quite right to us. Yeah, if, if she's uh, under 50, definitely should yeah. be a more um, aggressive fund, like a balanced or a growth fund. If she's in her 50s, maybe conservative. If she's got a good balance, if, if, yeah. but if she's try, still trying to build it, conservative is not going to get you there. Yeah, and then also just look at the insurance, particularly if she's uh, young and without dependents, no mortgage. And what about NGS? Have you looked them up, Paul? Uh, well, I didn't, but I did look up the only super default. That's the other thing. I'm surprised that is the default because their, their default fund which they say on their website, uh, they have about eight investment options, is balanced, yeah. not conservative balanced. So I'd be surprised if this is the default one. She may have chosen this, yeah. wanting to take a little less risk. And maybe she's very comfortable. I mean, you yeah. don't want people to take more risk than they feel comfortable about. I mean, that, so that's the other sort of caveat here is yeah. that it's, it's, it's good for us in theory to say it should be X. Mm. But I think you're going to have to have a discussion with her and mm. and really get to the sense of what she's after. And did you find NGS on any of the comparison? Look, I, I didn't go that far, Peter. No. But uh, but if they, if they go to Chant West or Super Ratings, I'm sure you'll find NGS there. If not, ring the fund up and, and ask them to send out their, their performance over one, three, five, and ten years. And the fund will also have what's called a, a product disclosure statement, a PDS. Yeah, and, it's uh, one of the best reading in town, Paul. Well, and you can get a copy of that. So, uh, look, Love that, a good PDS. All that information <laughs> will be there. So... Um, Look, hopefully that's, that helps Jim uh, with that question. That's a very good answer, Paul. Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. Remember, we are happy to answer any question you have, so make sure you send them to info at switzer.com.au. I'm Peter Switzer. I'm Paul Rickard. And thanks for joining us for The Switzer Show. Quitting time! Quitting time! Quitting time! Quitting time!